Well, good morning again. Could you better? Good morning. All right. Hey, grab your Bibles if uh, you have one, and if you don't, there should be plenty of Bibles scattered in the pew backs in front of you. So why don't you grab one of those and uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, pretty easy to find. First book in your New Testament, uh, Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, as we uh, pick up again in our sermon series, The King and His Kingdom, this morning, taking a look at how Jesus prepared His disciples, then turned apostles, uh, for service. For service. And as Jesus prepared them, so He also can prepare us for service. Preparation for service. Chapter 10. Uh, we will just barely be getting into chapter 10. We'll be taking a look at verses 1 through 4. 1 through 4. So I pray that you're there or close to it. And uh, I'm going to ask you to pray with me one more time. And then we're going to dive in. Father, thank you so much. It is, it is a wonderful privilege for us to be here. I thank you for these folks who are here uh, to give you their praise, uh, to uh, give back to you a portion of what you have entrusted to them for the work of your kingdom. And now um, you have given us your word, and that is infinitely valuable. We are so grateful that you are a God who speaks, that you are a God who has spoken, and that you are a God who has given us this book, your revelation to us. And in specifically, you speak have spoken to us in the person and work of your Son, Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of gods. And we want to hear and learn from Him, we pray, what it means to be His disciple, to be His follower, to be sent on mission with Him, with His gospel of His kingdom. And so we ask towards that end, in the powerful name of Jesus. And this morning, all God's people said together, Amen. Amen. Well, I'm sure you have heard of uh, this guy who I'd like to begin our sermon with. Uh, William Shakespeare. Probably heard of that name before somewhere in 12th grade English. Uh, or before, William Shakespeare in his play, Julius Caesar. There is a line that has struck me that I'd like to begin with. In Julius Caesar, there is a line that goes this way. Listen closely. There is a tide in the affairs of men, which taken at the flood leads on to fortune. Omitted, all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries. Friends, I wonder if you can think of a time in your life, a decision that you have made that was so significant, it was a turning point in your life, a turning point that, um, uh, that went on to influence the course of your entire life. I was in Louisville, Kentucky uh, just a few weeks ago, had the privilege of going to a conference called Together for the Gospel, and it meets there in Louisville every other year. It was a gathering of about 14,000 evangelical pastors and, and Christian leaders from around the area. And I uh, got to hear some wonderful messages and participate in some wonderful singing. But this, um, this truth that we just read from uh, William Shakespeare, his pen. I was able to ponder this truth as I was there. I pondered back to a decision that I had made uh, many years ago, back in the year 2002, that affected and shaped my life. It was a point that after that decision was made, there was really no turning back. See, in the year of 2002, I was graduating from uh, university, and I was planning to go into the ministry, and I was looking 
at seminaries. And so a friend of mine made a sort of a, a seminary tour, and we visited three or four seminaries throughout the country. And the first seminary that we visited was a southern seminary there in Louisville, Kentucky. And I remember being on that campus, and I remember uh, meeting the president of Southern, uh, Dr. Albert Moeller, and having a conversation with him in, in, in his office. And I remember uh, right then and there that I had decided that I was going to attend uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I was very excited, and my friend and I were very excited, and so we drove back home very eager to tell our friends that we had decided to, to attend that seminary and to move to Louisville. However, throughout the course of my senior year, things changed, and I did more research. And to make a long story shorter, I decided to go to Dallas Theological Seminary, a little closer to home. And of course, that was a decision that affected my life. It changed the course of my life, because there I met my wife, and we got married, and we both graduated. And while you know the story, here I am in Little Cisna Park, Illinois, all the way from Dallas. It Quite literally, that decision has affected the course of my life. And as I was in Louisville the other day, I just pondered for a, for a moment, you know, what would life be like for me had I decided to go to Louisville? Lord knows, right? But I pondered this truth uh, from Shakespeare. Friends, as we enter into what is the fourth major section in Matthew's Gospel, the parable of the king we find that the affairs of Jesus uh, at, 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 at this moment uh, were, was such a time for him. It was, it was a time when the tide, if you will, of his life and his ministry are about to go in a direction that cannot be changed, that cannot be turned from. This tide, for him, would not lead, in Shakespeare's words, to fortune, at least not initially, but to shallows and to miseries. See, back in chapter 9, in verse 34, just before the section we're going to begin today, the Pharisees had accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And as we move into this new section, that accusation will, will, will come to a head, if you will, in chapter 12. And Jesus confronts the religious leaders. It leads to a war of words. Jesus says that they will not be forgiven because they have rejected Him as King through the work of the Holy Spirit. He calls them names. He calls them, you brood of vipers. He labels them evil and wicked and adulterous. Clearly, this confrontation with the religious leaders of Israel are coming to a head. See, the masses within the nation were, for the most part, still enthusiastic because Jesus' ministry of miracles and of meals, but the religious leaders were not so. They were increasingly hostile to him. They had decided to reject him as their king. What were they to do with this man who, came to, who claimed to be the king of the Jews, their Messiah? And really, he claimed to be even more than that. What were they to do with him? Well, they were going to reject him. They were going to decide to crucify their king. One commentator said this, the tide, the tide had crested. Soon the ebb and flow would begin and it would climax in the cross. The Lord was well aware of opposition even as he began to commission the twelve. As he sent them forth here in chapter 10, he, uh, Jesus foretold the resistance to the king. 
And so as we begin in chapter 12, this title, uh, this, this chapter which I've entitled Resistance Foretold, Jesus is going to foretell, he's going to speak of the resistance that both he, his disciples would experience as they went out preaching the gospel of the kingdom to the nation of Israel, and of course the resistance that he himself would soon face. So the focus here as we begin in chapter 10, specifically in verses 1 through 15, Jesus is going to prepare them. He's preparing these 12 men that he's going to hand select to be his apostles, to be the leaders of the church one day after his resurrection. He's trying to prepare them for their future mission through this current ministry. And in this section, we'll see several what I will call truths for training, truths for training. Jesus was preparing, he was training his disciples and friends, he's doing that for us as well. Again, we'll, we'll get through just four short verses this morning, verses one, two, and three, and four. In verse one, we'll see a description of the master. The master is going to be on display for us in verse one. And then we'll see the master's men in verses two through four. So let's begin, take a look in your Bible starting in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, with a portrait of the Master. Verse 1, Jesus called His twelve disciples to Him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. So from the beginning, from the opening words here in chapter 10, we see that the authority of King Jesus is on grand display. Notice the introductory words. Jesus, here in the NIV, Jesus called, it says. Jesus called his 12 disciples. That's sort of a a weak translation. In the Greek, it's a proskaleo, which uh, more literally means he summoned. Now, there's a big difference between calling someone and summoning someone, is there not? Jesus as the king. This is kingly language. Jesus is summoning his subjects, if you will. Peter Forsyth was right when he said this, quote, he said, the first duty of every soul is not to find its freedom, but its master. Isn't that so opposite of our world today? We think the duty of every human soul is to find its freedom, making ourselves our own masters know Jesus here is saying the, the first duty of every human soul is not, it's not to find our freedom, it's to find who we belong to. And Jesus very clearly is acting as the king, as the master to these particular men. He is summoning them. He didn't invite them. He didn't offer them a job. He didn't offer them a position that they could accept or reject. He summons them with kingly authority. I remember uh, when I was at Dallas, I began uh, as a youth intern for one particular summer uh, at this church, and I served under a youth pastor who then subsequently left, and then the job was mine. It worked out pretty well. Um, So he left, but I I got to spend the summer with him. His name was David, and uh, he was a great guy, and he he would often um, tell the, the students... Uh, when it was on a youth, youth group or it was youth, youth night or on a mission trip or wherever it was, he would always remind the students, you know, when I ask you to do something, I'm really telling you to do something. And uh, when I make the rules, uh, it's black and white. And he would, he would say, friends, this is a benevolent dictatorship. What was he saying? This youth group is a benevolent dictatorship. I love you, but I'm in charge, right? That's what Jesus is saying. He, he's the king. He loves them, 
but he is in charge. We see the master here summoning his 12 disciples, which leads us to another point. He didn't call 10 disciples. He didn't call 5. He didn't call 20, right? How many did he call, church? Tell me. 12, okay? And that number is very significant here. Just think with me a little bit about your Bible. The number 12 comes up in the Scriptures several times, but there's one particular time that I want us to think of. When Jesus calls together 12 disciples, 12 hand-picked, very special men, he's going to send them on a mission, what does that number 12 remind you of? Well, maybe a number of things, but one of them should be the number of the sons of Jacob, who would then go on to be the number of the tribes of Israel, right? Twelve tribes of Israel that comprised God's old covenant people. And so now when Jesus calls twelve hand-picked men, the number is significant. He is telling them and us something. He is hinting at the establishment of a new group of new covenant leaders. This is the changing of the guard if you will, in God's dispensations from the old covenant made with Israel to a new covenant that God was making in and through His Son, made both with Jews and Gentiles alike. And it would be comprised of all who would trust in Him and follow Him as their King. It's called the church. And these twelve were to be the pillars The foundation, if you will, according to Paul in Ephesians 4, the foundation of the church was to be built with the actions and the ministry of these 12 men. So he he, he doesn't just display his, his kingly authority by summoning them unto himself. But we also see as we move on in verse 4 that he, he displays his authority by delegating his authority. Do you see that in verse 1? He called his disciples unto himself and he did what? He gave them. He gave them authority to drive out demons and to heal every sort of sickness and disease. He gives them authority. Think about what this must have been like for these 12 particular men. They had been walking with Jesus now for uh, a a, a time period, right? At least over a year, likely a year and a half, maybe even more than that. They had been with him. And just think of all the things that they had seen. I mean, they had seen Jesus drive out the demons from the two demoniacs in in the Gadarene region. But now, they could do that. They had seen Jesus heal a paralyzed man. And now they had been given the ability to do that. He now empowers them to display within the cities of Israel the same type of works that he had himself had been doing in the nation of Israel. But, but notice, this is very important. Theirs was not an inherent power, Right? It wasn't an inherent power within them. It was a derived power. It wasn't their power. It was Jesus' power in them and through them. And that's how ministry and service works, both for them and for me and you. Finally, before we leave verse 1, I should point out that, that this shared power was unprecedented in Israel's history. Think about the most powerful prophets of old. You, you think about men like Moses... You think about men like Elijah, 
they didn't share their miraculous powers with their disciples. But Jesus here is doing just that. And it reveals to us something about who he is. Though Jesus is a prophet, he's more than a prophet. He is God incarnate. And he delegates his kingly authority to those whom he chooses. So, friends, here in verse 1, we get our first truth for training, if you will. See, Jesus was preparing them for service and for uh, ministry. And friends, he wants to do the same for us. And so our first truth for training is simply this. To be a disciple of Jesus is to obey King Jesus. Friends, that seems overly simplistic, and yet it is a point that we should not overlook What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Well, it means a lot of things, but at its core, it means to obey King Jesus. We learn a vital truth about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It means obeying His commands. See, if there was a a king in this world and he had a, a kingdom, and that king demanded that his subjects do something or not do something, and then those subjects disobeyed him, that, th- those people really aren't subjects at all. What do we call them? We call them traitors, right? We call them traitors. Friends, the same is true of following King Jesus. There are some today, and I pray there, there are not any who sit in these pews, but there are some today who sit in pews and who listen to, to pastors and call themselves Christians, followers of Jesus, disciples of His, who, who live lives not in pursuit of Jesus' commands or in His prohibitions, not believing what Jesus clearly teaches in the Word. Friends, hear me clearly. Obedience to Jesus um, is, not, uh, is a part of being a disciple, right? It's not an elective course. It's, it's the very essence of being a follower of Jesus. It's not optional. So you can't claim Jesus as your king and then do whatever you want with your body sexually. Friends, hear me. You can't be a follower of Christ and then disobey the king's edicts on sexuality. You can't be a follower of Christ and not care about the king's other sons and daughters within the context of a local church. We can't be that. You can't claim Jesus as your king and then deny what he fundamentally teaches, say about creation, or about the reality of heaven and hell, or about the exclusivity of the gospel, that he is the only way to the Father, and that there is only one mediator between God and man, and it is Christ the King. You, to be a follower of Jesus is to seek to obey King Jesus. Archibald Rutledge wrote, he's an author, he wrote one day and told a story about a man uh, who had a dog who he loved. And that dog was tragically killed in a forest fire, heartbroken. That man explained to, to Rutledge how it happened. The man said that he had been working outside, sort of in the timber in the forest, and so naturally he took his dog with him. And that morning he left the animal in a clearing, And he gave the dog the command to stay and to watch over his lunch pail. He then left to do what he was going to do. And as the story goes, there was a fire that was sparked in the woods, and the blaze soon spread to the spot where the dog had been left. 
But, of course, the dog did not move. He stayed where he was in perfect obedience to his master's words. With tearful eyes, Rutledge recalls the dog's owner said this, and I quote, I always had to be careful what I told him to do because I knew he would do it. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if Jesus could say the same about me and about you. Because, truth for training number one, a disciple of Jesus means to be uh, obedient to King Jesus. We've seen the master in verse 1. Take a look in your scriptures of verses 2 through 4 as we see the master's men. The master's men. At the beginning of verse 2, we see the master's commission. He's going to call 12 men and um, give them a new role, a new position, a new commission. And then in verses 2 through 4 at the tail end, we see the master's um, coupling, if you will. He's going to pair them two by two. Notice the, the, the beginning of verse 2, the master's commission. These, we're told, are the names of the twelve apostles. Now, did you notice the, the, the change in language there? Look back in your scriptures at verse 1. Jesus called his twelve disciples to him. But now, what does he call them? These are the names of the twelve apostles. See, the change in language is, is really important, right? Disciple. Apostle. What does it mean to be an apostle? Well, just at its core, to be an apostle quite literally means to be a sent one. One who is sent to do a particular task or job. It really wasn't a technical term until here Jesus makes it a technical term. And as we move on in the rest of the New Testament, we see that it becomes a very technical term. Uh, Oftentimes, it's used to describe these 12 particular men who were with Jesus from the beginning, right, throughout his ministry. Of course, minus Judas. And then Judas was replaced in Acts chapter 1 by by Matthias. So this, this group of 12, if you will, they're called apostles. It is a title. They had been with Jesus, they had seen Him in His resurrected state, and they are sent out to share that gospel and to be the foundation of what would become the church. Of course, we know there's a 13th. What's his name? His name's Paul, right? As he saw uh, Jesus on the, on the road there to Damascus. So it's a technical term sometimes, but in the New Testament, it's, it's sometimes not a technical term because it can quite literally mean just somebody who is sent out on a mission. In fact, oftentimes in the New Testament, you and I are called apostles because we too have been sent out. Have we not? In Matthew 28, 18, what did Jesus say after his resurrection? Therefore, all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. Therefore, what? What? Go. Thank you. Therefore, go. Right? Jesus sends his church. And if you're a Christian then you are sent. You are an apostle. Lowercase a, apostle. But you are an apostle nonetheless. You are sent as an ambassador to the king to represent his kingdom, both to share his gospel and to prove it with supernatural power that Jesus gives us. Well, we've seen the Master's commission. Let's see how he coupled his apostles in verses 2 through 4. What follows then in our text is one of four lists in the New Testament of the twelve apostles. Now, if you read through those lists and you you sort of put them side by side, you'll find out that none of them are in the same order. 
Don't be alarmed. It's the same people. They're just ordered slightly different. However, um, there are some similarities. If you look at all the lists, uh, they are always given in groups of three. So group number one, one, two, three, four. Group number two, one, two, three, four. Group number three, one, two, three, four. And interestingly enough, the first name in each of the three groups, it's always the same. It's likely that Peter and Philip and James, the the son of Alphaeus, were probably sort of leaders of these uh, three groups. We don't know that, but it's interesting to think about. However, Matthew's list does have one particular distinction. And I think it's an important distinction because in Matthew's list, he lists the um, disciples, which he is now making apostles, um, in pairs of two. Just read the text with me. You'll see it. Um, First, Simon, who is called Peter and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, why did, why did Matthew do that? Well, I think a good answer is, is found in Mark chapter 6, because there in Mark chapter 6, we don't get a list of these names, but we're, but we're told of the same event. And Mark tells us that when Jesus sent his uh, disciples turned apostles out for this particular mission, that he sent them into the cities of Israel two by two. And so here we have a list, right? Two by two. So it's likely that Simon and his brother Andrew went to this particular city. And James and John, brothers, they likely went to that particular city. And so on and so forth is probably what what happened. Certainly, Jesus did it for a reason. Certainly, he paired these two. He coupled these men together to send them on a mission, certainly with forethought and prayer and intentionality and purpose. We don't know exactly what those purposes are, but there had to be a reason why Simon the Zealot was put with Judas Iscariot. There had to be a reason why Thomas was put with Matthew. We don't know what it was, but it's interesting to think about. Nonetheless, I think we have one more truth for training here as we uh, close our sermon. Second truth for training is this. We see that to be a disciple of Jesus is to speak the King's words and to do His works. We see this especially as we move into the text. Jesus is going to later, next week, He's going to give these men a specific message Go into the cities of Israel and preach that the kingdom uh, is at hand. They're preaching the message of the kingdom. And here, very clearly, they have things that they are to do. When they find demons, they are to cast them out. When they see those who are sick or ill, they are to heal them with the authority that Jesus gives them. They are to do to share the king's words, and they are to authenticate the message of the kingdom with the miracles of the kingdom, right? The miracles authenticate the message. And friends, it works that way with you and I as well. Though we are not apostles in the technical sense, we are in the general sense. In fact, take a look on the screen behind me at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says this. He says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal Through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Friends, think what is an ambassador in our day. An ambassador is appointed by the king or the president or the chancellor of a country to go represent both that that ruler, that leader, and the kingdom or the nation that he or she represents, right? And that ambassador better share the message that the president or the king 
gave him or her, right? What they say is to be a representation of their authority. And, and then they better do the things that that leader told them to do. Here, Paul very clearly identifies Christians as Christ's ambassadors. As though, he says, God were making his appeal through us. Here's the language, my friends, that when you and I go out and we live our everyday lives in the school and and in our offices, uh, on the ball fields, whatever that might be, that we are Christ's ambassadors. That's not in question. The question is, what kind of ambassadors are we being? Are we faithful or are we not? Are we saying the king's words or are we not? Are we doing the king's deeds or are we not? And friends, notice here, what is our message? Paul says, it's like God through us is making an appeal to the lost world. And what is God's appeal through us? What's the message? Well, take a look. Paul says, we implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. So our message as Christ's ambassadors, as little a apostles, is, is friend, you need to be reconciled to God. Now let me ask you a dumb question. If the message is that we need to be reconciled to God, what does that imply about our current state? Are we reconciled to God? No. Because the good news is that we can be reconciled to God, but the bad news is that we are born not reconciled to God. We are separated from God. We are alienated from God because of our sin. God is holy, holy, holy. And we are sinful, sinful, sinful. And we deserve His right and just punishment. But God, in great love for us, sent His Son. We implore you on Christ's behalf. He is the one who allows us to share this message. Be reconciled to God. Well, how can that be if God is holy and we are sinful? How can we be reconciled to a holy God? Take a look at verse 21. God made Him, speaking of Jesus, who had no sin, Jesus was perfectly sinless, to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, the righteousness that we so desperately need and we don't have in and of ourselves, Christ has and He offers to us. And He says, I implore you, be reconciled to God. Because I have the righteousness that you need and you can't earn or merit or work for on your own. And not only does Christ offer us that perfect righteousness, but He paid the penalty for our sin. Did you see that in verse 21? He made Him who who had no sin to be sin, to bear our sins, to take our wrath. Friends, that is our message if we are good ambassadors. The question is, what kind of ambassadors are we? So let me leave you with this. The reformer, the German reformer, Martin Luther, uh, once said this about uh, a religion. And when he uses the word religion, he means our practice, our, our living out of our faith. And he said this, A religion, our religion, our personal religion, a religion that gives nothing, a religion that costs nothing, in a religion that, that suffers nothing, is worth nothing. Friends, I want to ask you this question. Your religion, your practice of your faith, 
Does it give something? Does it, does it give something? Does it give the message of the king? Does it do the works of the king? Does your religion cost something? Are you giving up something in order to serve the king? Does it suffer nothing? If that's the case, then your faith is worth nothing. Does it describe your religion? And it may be because you're not a disciple of the king. Because to be a disciple of the king is to obey the king. And to be a disciple of the king is to share the king's words and to do the king's works. Let's pray.